If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, tonight is your answer. That was President-elect Barack Obama thanking his supporters on November 4, 2008 in Grant Park, Chicago. That victory speech, which marked the first time the United States had elected a black president, was the culmination of an evening in which Obama rocketed to victory over Arizona Senator John McCain. For many of us who had lived through the accomplishments, the two gradual progress, and the disappointments of the American Civil Rights Movement, Election night was punctuated with tears of joy and a sense of national accomplishment. Obama's election affirmed the influence of African-American voters in the party, as well as the Democratic Party's commitment to them. Of course, Democrats had been offered the opportunity to elect the first woman president, Hillary Clinton, and that would have been a historic moment as well. But eight more years of Clintonism made Democrats uneasy. It meant giving in to the status quo, it raised fears of returning to the deal-making, the compromises of the 1990s that had left progressives with don't ask, don't tell, gay marriage bans, war, a diminished social welfare state, accelerated partisanship, and the lies and obfuscations about sex that marred Bill Clinton's presidency. The Clintons were the establishment. It was time to move on. But the Obama team created a new establishment on top of the old one. They brought campaign techniques based on social media, texting, and data gathering to full fruition, creating new ways of getting to voters, new forms of participation, and an even more powerful class of political consultants. Post-Obama, the leadership of political campaigns remained as centralized and closed as it ever had been. Which is why, as we approach another voting day and you are being implored to knock doors, text, phone, give $5 now, and write postcards to voters, I've invited Daniel Lorison, Associate Professor of Sociology at Swarthmore College, whose new book, Producing Politics, Inside the Exclusive Campaign World Where the Privileged Few Shape Politics for All of Us, explores, and I quote, the hidden and powerful role campaign professionals play in shaping American democracy. You're listening to Why Now, the podcast that makes expert ideas about the past relevant to the world we live in today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. Welcome, Daniel Lorison. Uh, Daniel, you are Associate Professor of Sociology at Swarthmore College and the author of Producing Politics, Inside the Exclusive Campaign World Where the Privileged Few Shape Politics for All of Us, which is just out from Beacon Press. Um, you know, Daniel, as someone who has worked on political campaigns off and on since I was a kid, I was obviously really drawn to this book. And it kind of solved a problem for me, which is why in the last couple decades, my offers of higher level assistance on campaigns are consistently rejected. And I end up scrolling through computerized lists of likely voters in places like Florida and Arizona every election year. 
Um, so Daniel, why don't you tell us some a little something about yourself as well as how you got involved in politics and ended up on the Obama campaign? Sure. So um, I was uh, raised by a mom who was a Marxist and she was, you know, we were sort of in our household interested in how do we get to the revolution. And, um, you know, most people don't think campaigns is how you get to the revolution. But at least for me, um, you know, that that upbringing raised a lot of questions for me about how do people get an understanding of how the world ought to work, how it does work, how to make it better. Um, And I sort of came to the conclusion that politics is is where it's at for a lot of that um, and that campaigns could be a place where uh, people get connected to politics where people get an understanding of what the problems are that they're facing and how they might solve them um, where people have a chance to get involved in making things better now that's a you know pretty idealistic vision but at least in theory it seems like it should be possible um, and so I decided I wanted to understand how our contemporary politics works and I thought going to work on a campaign campaign would be a way to do that. Um, And, you know, as I recounted the book, I had the same experience you've had and most people who've tried to get involved with national level or even, you know, state level campaigns have had, which is I showed up and I was like, I could do so much for you. I ran a nonprofit. I can fundraise. I can manage volunteers. I can plan events. I can do pretty much anything you might need me to do with it. You're like, "Uh aha, great. Here's your list. Off you go. Uh, a lot of questions for me about, again, you know, why it works that way and, and maybe how it could be different. Well, and, and obviously we've shared this experience. I, of course, showed up and said, I'm a writer. I'm a political historian. Look what I can do. And they were like, yeah, you know, all academics think they can offer something to a campaign and, you know, download minivan. Why don't you? Yeah. Um, so so you got involved in the Obama campaign, as did I on the other coast. Um, and that kind of sparked your interest in writing this book. Um, so why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, to be to be fair, I got involved at that. You know, by the time I got involved with the Obama campaign, I knew that it was going to be part of my my dissertation research. So um, I was there in part to do sort of participant observation, and in part because I did really want to be part of making sure that Obama got elected. Um, and so it was it was both both things. Um, and then there was a period, you know, that that was 2008. This is 2022. Um, I finished my dissertation. I went and got a postdoc. There was a period while Obama was president where I thought some of the things that I was concerned about, I was maybe a little less worried about um, in terms of what, um, you know, what some of what I talk about in this book, um, in part because the Obama campaign really was much more, you know, offered a lot more opportunities for people to participate in meaningful ways than most national level campaigns before or since. Um, so I wasn't as motivated and I had other projects and all of that. Um, but when I came back to the U.S. in the uh, summer of 2016 and Trump was elected in the fall, uh, I realized that the you know the things that I was concerned about in terms of whether campaigns were really connecting to pe- people to politics, who gets to be in charge of our politics, I realized that those are you know, probably eternally important, and I needed to to pay attention and actually write the book. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see how quickly the kinds of innovations that came in with the Dean campaign and to the people. Um, you know, I've read a number of memoirs by campaign consultants, um, Joe Trippi, David Axelrod, and 
Your book suggests to me that it's no accident that the successful political consultant is a white guy with a long-suffering wife and a talent <laughs> for brutal overwork. Tell us why that is. Yeah, one of the people I uh, one of the people I interviewed said, you know, who was sort of moving out of working in politics as his full-time job, said to me basically he goes to the um, AAPC, which is the American Association of Political Consultants. He goes to those conventions and he says it's just a lot of sad divorce old white men. Um, uh, he said, don't quote me on that, which you know, I anonymize all my respondents. So um, no one can figure out who told me that. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, w one of the things that's going on, not the only thing, but one of the things that's going on is, is politics as a world, um, like a lot of elite fields, but, but probably more so in many ways, where there's not, you know, despite the fact that there's a clear win and loss in you know, almost every race, there's really not an objective sort of neutral way to say this person made a decision that contributed po contributed positively to the campaign. This person worked effectively. This idea is really what did it. You know, if you look at the political science literature on campaign effects, they're filled with debates and, and you know, uncertainty about how much any given thing that a campaign does can really affect the outcome. Um, so in the face of that uncertainty, you can't judge people based on knowing for sure what their work actually did for the outcome. You instead judge people based on proxies, uh, proxies for merit or, or good work. Um, that happens again in lots of fields. Uh, in campaigns, for various reasons, one of the main proxies for are you good at this job is do you work yourself into the ground every, every election cycle? Um, and so there's just, you know, there's some other reasons for that, too. There really is a firm deadline that's the end of the campaign and there's nothing, you know, nothing you do the day after the election you know, with a small uh, caveat for some of the uh, Trump attempts and so on. Um, but generally speaking, nothing you do after the, the day after the election matters. So you should leave it all on the field, as they say. Um, but really, a lot of it is just, I think, a, a attempt to figure out how to judge people uh, without the, you know, without any sort of metrics that, without many of the metrics that other fields can use. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because the world of campaigning actually suits people for the work of governing on a certain level because you end up in the White House for academia. But that's that's another question entirely. But I think um, that's if it's okay yeah. if I jump. In, I mean, I think that's you know one of the the things that concerns me about about. Uh, in writing this book is that the people who work on campaigns are in fact a good portion of the people who end up with jobs in the White House as communications directors for Senate and, and House offices, you know, doing these sort of high powered political staff jobs. Um, and so getting selected into it, you know, based on, you know, if it were just based on, are you willing to work um, like a maniac, then okay. But also it selects for people who have been interested in politics kind of as a hobby, as a pastime, as a, as a game that they're into um, since they were kids. And that's a very particular type of person. It does tend to be men. Um, it tends to be disproportionately white people. And it tends especially, I think, to be disproportionately people who are from sort of uh, middle to upper middle class to, to well-off families, um, just because of the, the demographics overall and who pays a lot of attention to politics generally, um, who's going to come to see politics as a fun, exciting activity to spend their time on and one that welcomes people like them. Um, and so we get, you know, not just a campaign staff and consultant 
class that's mostly uh, white and from relatively well-off backgrounds and went to elite colleges, um, that also shapes who goes into running our politics once people are elected. Well, and as you point, keeps the, this pool of workers as very much an inner circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in sociology, we talk about homophily, which is just, you know, a slightly unnecessary way of saying people tend to to like and to hire people who are similar to them. So there's, right. but there's also, you know, there's all sorts of biases built into that, right? So um, a lot of people I, I interviewed talked about just the way that, um, uh, the way that people in uh, campaigns really value certain approaches to expressing yourself, certain approaches to, um, you know, arguing certain approaches. So it's not just the overwork that's required. It's also, um, you know, one person described the people who end up in the t- inner circles of presidential campaigns as a cauldron of assholes, Uh Right. It, you know, sort of being willing to have sharp elbows, being willing to argue over people, um, being willing to sort of, you know, not sort of, but to assert yourself over everybody else. And that's a style that is, um, first of all, often when women and people of color attempt that style, they're read as obnoxious or arrogant or et cetera. So it actually isn't even available to them. Um, and it's a style that is, you know, sort of taught to especially white men from, you know, relatively well off families. Well, and and I think we really saw this in the 2020 campaign with Nina Turner, um, who was absolutely destroyed for doing some of the things online that white men did routinely to defend their candidates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a there's an intersection between the who who's the campaign staff, who's the candidate. There's also just an awful lot of sort of within Democrat and left politics hostility between, you know, among the different camps. So I think there's there's all of that, but absolutely um, you know, I I, di- I didn't get to interview Simone Sanders, but I quote her in the book talking about what it's like to show up in these spaces. And she says something about uh, showing up in these spaces with a bold lip and a bedazzled nail as a way to sort of evoke how, you know, her self-presentation and her race and gender are just so different from what's standard and expected in these spaces. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things you talk about, too, is that these campaign worlds are so insular that the voters kind of become an abstraction. Um, and that's that's something that you suggest is a real problem for our political culture. Um, you argue that, that one function campaigns play is to teach citizens how to connect their own experiences to the bigger picture. Um, and that it could be a conversation between the campaign and the voters, but in general, it isn't. It's a, it's a kind of one-way street. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's been an era in U.S. political history, and it's been true other places where, you know, the the job of political operatives was really to connect communities to the parties that w- they were trying to get elected. Um, mm-hmm. In the U.S., that was the sort of machine politics era, and there were lots of problems in that era. Um, in terms of, you know, if you wanted your garbage collected, you had to make sure you were on the right side of the, you know, of the political machine that was running the city. Um, but there were also, you know, it really was somebody's job to figure out, okay, the people on this block, I'm in charge of under, of knowing them and knowing what they need, or the people who are members of this church, or the people who are in this club, whatever it is, and I need to communicate both ways between the people, you know, 
the people in, in actual communities and the political infrastructure. And we don't have that anymore. We don't have a way for uh, regular people's concerns to get communicated up the chain to uh, po- to politicians, to campaigns, to parties, except for polling, right? Um, mm-hmm. And polling is is great for figuring out sort of relationships among characteristics that people have. It's not that it's worthless, but it really doesn't give you a sense of sort of where people are, and it doesn't give people any way to sort of engage, you know, as I say in the book, engage in a conversation between regular people in politics, um, you know. Go ahead if you were going to talk. No, in. no, I, I was just thinking about the Kansas vote on abortion, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, what we were seeing in the media was that, you know, this was a terrible time of tension and nobody knew what was going to happen. And intuitively, I actually believed that abortion would survive in mm-hmm. Kansas um, because of the sort of national numbers that say, you know, overwhelmingly, Americans want abortion in some mm-hmm. form. They might differ about what that form is, but they actually want it to remain low. Right. right. I, mean, I think that's one of the things that, you know, when you understand people only through polls and your job is to, not only through polls, I mean, I think it's important to be, I think there are political professionals who really want to understand the people they're trying to influence, who who do a lot more than just look at polling numbers, et cetera. But generally, it you know, it really is the case that voters become, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that, is that voters become basically the field on which the game is played. They're not Mm -hmm. sort of active participants in any way. And when that's how you're thinking about people, you tend to think about them on in terms of, you know, a, a, a assortment of issues in various dimensions and how strongly do they feel about them? And where is that sort of fulcrum demographic that I can try to peel away from the other side and move to my side? Um, and that has a, you know, that has a bunch of sort of carryover effects. One of them is that, um, you know, one of them is that you could be really surprised by how people vote if you just pay attention to the ways that uh, certain sets of voters are characterized uh, when they're voting for parties. Uh, the other is, and I, I sort of started to say this before, but I want to come back to it, is that, you know, the the one thing that research has shown to be the most effective in terms of, you know, getting people to do anything in politics, basically, is human contact, which shouldn't be surprising to us as humans, really. Um, it's certainly not surprising to sociologists that, you know, actual relationships be- among people are what move the world in many ways. Uh, but that's something that's really missing from politics right now. Um, very few people uh, have a direct, you know, a direct line to anybody involved in politics. The people who do tend to be, again, the people with the most resources, the people with the most privilege, and very few people have have heard from a campaign in any or a politician in a, or a party, other than those sort of, you know, incessant phone calls if you're in a swing state and you're a targeted voter, or incessant door knocks, and those are usually just, "Hi, we want to make sure you vote," um, not any sort of conversation, any sort of two-way street. So interesting you should say that because one of the things we were told on Elizabeth Warren's campaign in New Hampshire is never go into anybody's house under any circumstances. And so one of the days I was canvassing, I was knocking on doors to try and invite people to come to a Warren rally nearby. And, you know, people were like, no, 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 I'm too busy, blah, blah, blah. And I knocked on the door of a elderly woman and she said, no, she really was too busy. And a friend was coming over and I said, okay, I said, um, by the way, you know, my mother, who's about your age, 
always needs things like having light bulbs changed. Um, do you have any light bulbs that are out at your house that you would like to be changed? And she said, well, actually, now that you mention it, I do. So I went in and I got her ladder out and I changed a bunch of light bulbs for her. <laughs> and at the end of it, she said, you know, I think I'm going to go to that rally after all, and I'll bring my friend. And <laughs> and so, and then I started doing that every time an, a retired person answered the door, I'd say, is there anything you need? And it was very, very effective in getting them to pause. And this is New Hampshire, where you're right, there's so much door knocking. Get them to pause just for a second and say, hey, this is a nice person and she's working for Elizabeth Warren. Maybe I should go to the rally. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. And it's exactly what campaigns tend to not do, right? They they give a very tight script for how you're supposed to interact with people at the doors. Um, they want to get as many door knocks in as they possibly can. And people feel like they're being treated as numbers, um, mm -hmm. that they're being treated instrumentally. And nobody likes to be to feel that they're being treated instrumentally. I mean, I should say the the that sort of interaction, even the the instrumental ones, is uh, more likely than, say, an ad to get someone to come out and vote um, who might not otherwise come out and vote. So it is more effective than completely abstracted communication. But really, I mean, if you think about yourself, what you want from most interactions is to, is to feel like you're, you know, having a human interaction. And campaigns mostly take that away, right? They give you, a, if you're a volunteer, you're often treated as essentially a cog. And if you're going out and knocking doors, you're having these very, very, um, you know, short scripted, not that we mostly follow the scripts, but we've just got this little script to look at, um, you know, sort of instrumental transaction. Uh, if you actually you know, if you actually have a conversation with somebody, if you actually, there's this movement in politics uh, in some corners of the campaign world now to do something called deep canvassing, um, which basically just means ask real questions and listen to the answers. Um, and that can sometimes even move people's opinions on issues. You can get people to be more open to immigration or to uh, transgender people than you might have, than they might have been without that conversation. But it requires time. It requires investment. It requires people feeling like they're, you know, that they're a real person to you. You know, that's so interesting. And this is leading me to something I've been thinking about for a while, which is that the Donald Trump phenomenon has often been framed as Trump understanding and channeling the anger um, of Americans who both political parties had neglected and forgotten about. Um, and I'd like to know what you think about that model. But it has also occurred to me that after reading your book, that Donald Trump actually created that anger um, rather than picked up on it and expressed it on behalf of, of his followers. So could you talk to that phenomenon a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think both things are true, right? There, there was anger and resentment among a bunch of people about political elites. Much of that had been uh, channeled by the Republican Party, by Fox News, et cetera, into, um, you know, into racism, into xenophobia, um, channeled into is not quite right. You know, the strengthened maybe is maybe the better way to say that. But, um, you know, there were, 
you know, a lot of people get the message that if they're feeling like the world is not working the right way for them, a lot of white people get the message that if they're feeling like the world is not working the way they want, it's probably the fault of black people in cities somehow, or it's the, probably the fault of quote unquote illegal immigrants somehow. Um, so it wasn't just Trump um, saying that. That's not only about, you know, about him at all, but I think he did... Uh, use it and and play it back to people more directly than other politicians had for at least a little while. Um, and so I think you're right that that's that's part of what's going on, both that he's both that he's, you know, inflaming those sentiments and that he's responding to them. And I think, you know, more than that, there's, uh, you know, he I think people, you know, some number of people who really liked him just liked that he wasn't like everybody else. Right. Even if they didn't in fully approve of of, you know, what he was saying or how he was saying it, because he was so different from your standard politician, that that appealed in and of itself. It seemed more real to people. One of the things I keep going back to is I think that would have been less possible if many of those people had some connection to politics before that, some way of sort of, you know, if there had been, a, you know, for, for my politics, at least a Democratic Party organizer or a Working Families Party organizer or some other sort of, you know, on the left or half of the political spectrum person who had come to their door at some point and said, do you have a light bulb that needs to be changed, right? Is there something in your life that you want me to take back to the people that I know who have some power that we could maybe try to do something about? What are you concerned about? Um, and that, you know, that's something that's not, you know, there, there are organizations and a lot of them say, it's just, I just feel like I don't know enough, which, you know, to me, as an incredibly educated person, all I need to know in order to decide who to vote for is what party label is by their name, right? I don't need to know anything at all, but a lot of regular people feel like they need to know more. They don't know where to get the information. Um, if a lot of, if those people that I'm interviewing right now had a friend who was part of the Democratic Party infrastructure in their state or had, had been visited a couple times by somebody like you or somebody else saying, you know, I'm part of this thing. We care about you. We want to know about you. What do you, you know, what are your concerns? I think a lot of them would have a much easier time going up. Oh, well, I was visiting visited by that Working Families Party organizer, and they seem to care. So I guess those are the good people, and that's who I'll vote for. Mm -hmm. um, and conversely, if they get visited by a you know a Trump canvasser or et cetera, and get some of that same message, it's very easy to say, well, they're you know they're saying that my you know my problems are because of the immigrants, and that makes sense. So you know I guess those are the people who care about me. It's really interesting, um, Daniel. I would love it if our listeners could get a sense of the book itself. And I wonder if there's a passage in the book that you could read. Um, give us a little introduction and tell, tell the listeners where it has come from, and then read a short passage to give them a sense of the book. Sure. So this is from, this is from the introduction, and we've, we've covered some of this, but I think it's worth, um, well, it's what I plan to read, so it's what I've got, but I think it's worth reading anyway. Um, so it's from the, the very beginning of the book and then a few pages in. Um, on November 4th, 2008, I was crammed into the Oakland Convention Center alongside other Obama campaign staff, volunteers, and voters, all thrilled to celebrate the election of our nation's first black president, Barack Obama. My partner, Hannah, and our 13-month-old baby were there with me, but Hannah was, in, in retrospect, entirely justifiably furious with me. She nearly skipped the victory party altogether. 
For months, I'd been consumed by my role in Obama's campaign, when every action could, in theory, tip the balance between our candidate with a firm end date in sight. Um, sorry, it could, in theory, tip the balance toward our candidate, and with a firm end date in sight, it had been all too easy to prioritize the election over friends, family, sleep, and nutrition. Uh, by election night in 2008, Hannah was sick of handling every aspect of our lives while I fanatically logged hours in the campaign office. Um, I got involved with that campaign primarily because I knew the outcome was so important, but I've come to believe that even beyond who gets elected, the activities, culture, and organization of campaigns are, are essential aspects of American democracy. Campaigns should matter to all of us. The candidates who ultimately win elected offices wield enormous power through the laws they pass and the executive orders they issue, the judges they appoint, and the norms they promote or discard. Um, political decisions touch every aspect of our lives, from the most personal outwards. I'm a transgender man, and my marriage to Hannah in 2006 would not have been recognized by the state if I hadn't yet transitioned. Now, two people of any gender can legally wed across the country. We'll see if that sticks um, with the Supreme Court as it is. Um, uh, campaigns and the people who work in them are at least as important, though, because of how their actions define our democracy. During federal election contests, it's hard to miss hearing the campaign's attempts to win votes. By late summer 2016, nearly half of registered voters had been contacted directly by a campaign. Um, in 2020, federal, state, and local cam campaigns combined bought 9.3 million television advertisements. Campaign communications try to convince us that we should be hopeful or fearful, that government can help solve problems or that it creates them, that politicians are on our side or that they are out of touch elites. Political ads and speeches often play on racism, sexism, xenophobia, or homophobia, but they can challenge these as well. Um, the, the professionals who, camp who run campaigns craft and target these communications. They decide which potential voters should be contacted and what messages we should receive and what candidates should emphasize as they seek office. And they even influence how politicians govern once they get into office. To understand campaigns, then, we need to understand the people whose work builds them, the political consultants and political operatives who make their living working for parties, campaigns, and allied partisan and political organizations. Just as the decision makers at Netflix, HBO, and ABC determine what kinds of entertainment to provide, these campaign professionals curate our political options. They, the ways they shape the system and its offering for voters come out of their perceptions of what is politically possible, which persuasion strategies are effective, how the electorate operates, and what will make sense to and be rewarded by the rest of the political world. To make sense of a political landscape that's often baffling to outsiders, we need to know how and why campaign professionals do what they do. And that's what the book tries to do. That's fantastic, Daniel. And thank you for, for reading that passage, because it gets me quickly to something I really want to know about. Um, a lot of us focus on how money corrupts the political process. And this has been a particular focus for progressives since 2010, when the Supreme Court ruled in Citizens United versus FEC that political spending is a form of free speech. But you don't think money is the most important thing going on here. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I think, you know, at least in terms of what campaigns do. So I could let me back up for a second. I, you know, I absolutely think it is a problem in our democracy that people with ridiculous amounts of money can use that money to influence what politicians decide to do. Um, and I think that does happen, although, you know, studies that try to track it see a little bit less of a direct cause and effect than I think many of us suspect that there is. Um, but I think in terms of campaigns, where, you know, a lot of what campaigns do is driven by what people inside them believe is effective. 
Um, and so they spend far more on ads than most observers would like, um, you know, certainly than I would like, and far less on field and, and direct contact with people and organizing and all of that than I think they ought to. But I don't think it's primarily because they're trying to line their own pockets. Um, there's absolutely people in campaigns who do TV ad production and other ad production who make more money the more ads there are, um, but they're not the only ones making decisions or even usually the main ones making decisions. So they wouldn't be getting all that money if the people around them didn't also believe that's the right way to do it or value that kind of communication. And I think part of what's going on there in that sort of focus on ads and other big broadcast, big media, highly produced sort of things versus organizing and direct people contact is just what's valued and visible in the field. Right? It's much more fun to see your ad on TV um, and feel like, you know, you're hitting back against, I mean, there's all this, I mean, I'm enjoying the Oz and Fetterman stuff that's going on right now, right? Um, and I think it may, you know, it may make some difference, uh, but the only people who are really watching that are the people who are paying attention to politics anyway. Um, so it's, you know, it's enjoyable to see that, that happening, um, but and, and there's no glamour in, uh, in field work, right? There's no glamour in uh, actually going out and talking to people, even though all the research suggests that's the most effective thing to do. Um, so again, you know, I would, I, you know, I did some quick arithmetic, um, you know, the Democrats spent uh, something like uh, $8 billion just at the federal level in 2020. They took just one of those billion dollars. They could hire thousands of organizers across the country to work full time at good wages um, for just one eighth of what they spent last time. And I think it would make an enormous difference relative to what they do, what they're doing now. So I wouldn't, you know, I'm not so worried about how much is being spent nearly as much as I'm worried about how it's being spent. Well, and I wonder how much that last point you're making connects to something you say in the book, which is that every once in a while we have a campaign like the Sanders campaign that says, how are we going to win? We're going to win by bringing in new voters. But you say, actually, political consultants don't really want to bring in new voters. Um, can you explain to our listeners why that is? Because that was a revelation to me, frankly. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing for political, you know, for people making decisions in campaigns is they want to mobilize people who they think will vote for them. And so they have uh, all sorts of techniques for figuring that out secretly, not secretly, but, uh, you know, really it turns out that if you know somebody's party registration and or their race, that's going to get you most of the way there most of the time. But they have these scores where they look at all sorts of data that they can, that all the data that they can get and they figure out how likely are you to vote in the next election and how likely are you, you know, where do you fall on an ideological scale? How likely are you to vote for the Democrats if you're a Democratic campaign that's looking at this? Um, and they want to target people they're reasonably sure will vote for Democrats um, and that only vote occasionally. And so they um, so they don't, you know, those of us who vote every four years are almost never on their or every two years or every election we can um, are almost never on their lists. Uh, and people who have never voted and they don't have any data on, it's really hard to predict how they're going to vote. And so they don't necessarily want to risk mobilizing those people. I mean, that's also why when you get a walk list and you're supposed to go door to door, there's houses that you're going right by that there might be somebody there and they say, don't knock on that door. We don't want you to accidentally remind a Republican to vote. Um, you know, those of us who are, who are working for Democrats, which I'm assuming is most people listening here. Um, right. So, so they're, you know, they're worried that the, that you'll, they'll accidentally mobilize an opponent. That's part of it. And then the other thing that they, uh, 
you know, that a number of them said to me is basically their job is to get to 50% plus one, right? Their job is to get over the threshold to win the election. Um, and they have to figure out the most effective and efficient way to do that. And, um, you know, increasing the size of the electorate doesn't necessarily help them do that in any way. You know, if it's good for democracy, that's fine, but that's not their main concern. You know, and not to make them sound too, you know, the, any given campaign professional in any given election, that is their job, right? That's what the candidate has asked them to do. Um, but again, because we run basically all of our politics through individual campaigns with individual candidates, we don't have nearly as many people focusing as I think we ought to on bringing new people into the electorate and tying them to the party that has more of their interests at heart. You know, it's interesting. I had not intended to ask you this question, but I'm thinking back to 2016, um, which the big story about 2016 is that Robbie Mook's numbers were off. They were off in Florida. They were off in Ohio. They were off in Wisconsin. But I wonder why they were off. And one of the things I noticed about the Trump phenomenon when I started doing things like going to rallies and so on after he was elected was this intense enthusiasm from people who had not actually previously been political. So did Trump sort of all by accident bring a lot of new voters into the system? Is that why the Clinton numbers were off in your view? Um, I don't. I, I So based on, you know, an analysis of data, I can't answer that directly because I haven't looked at that. Um, and I want to be be cautious about, you know, not making claims I can't defend based on evidence. But I do, you know, that said, that's sort of my gut is that there's some people who were not, you know, were not previously voting or were not voting regularly who got excited. I mean, one thing Trump did that I think, you know, I think more people ought to do is he did rallies in all kinds of places where no politician had done a rally before. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, you know, if somebody shows up in your small town that hasn't seen a national political candidate since who knows when, that's going to make you feel like that politician is invested in you and your community and make you, I think one, you know, maybe one overarching message of the book and a lot of my research is that most people don't approach politics the way that many academics do and many academics imagine that other people do of their values and beliefs and priorities and then look across the political field and say oh yes i value a border wall and therefore you know i believe that immigrant you know unchecked immigration is bad for our country and therefore i will vote for this trump person and i value or or i you know i had an abortion when i was 25 and i know that that's necessary healthcare, even for people who, you know, who might want there to be less abortion overall. So I'm going to vote for the Democrats this time to protect Roe v. Wade, even if I care about other issues, right? People don't sort of make the, mostly, most of the time, don't make these sort of careful, rational, you know, like logical decisions. A lot of us, and this is really true for, for many, many you know, people with lots of education as well as everybody else, you know, we look around at our communities, we look around at who's around us, we look around at what our friends are saying, and we're in that world. And that world is, for most people, either a strongly democratic world or a strongly republican world or a strongly radical world or a strongly disconnected world, right? And, and, you know, that's where our votes come from. That's where pol our political views come from. That's where identities come from. Um, and so, you know, just having the exact right message, which is where a lot of political energy gets focused, isn't going to make a big difference 
um, for any of those people, right? The people who aren't deeply connected to politics on one side or the other, um, you know, the exact right message isn't what's going to help them figure out which party they think is better for them. Um, and the rest of us are already sort of in communities that are pretty strongly partisan. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I just realized that I am that reactive person that I didn't think I was because I just voted absentee for the first time in like 30 years because I'm going to be away on, on primary day in Massachusetts. And because I was sitting there with my absentee ballot, I got my computer out and I looked up all of the candidates that I didn't know and went to their websites so that I could make a decision. And I realized in the past, normally I'm like, all right, I don't know any of these people. I'm voting for the woman. Okay, I don't know any of these people. I'm voting for the person of color <laughs> and so on. I had never actually researched the candidates I didn't know and having an absentee ballot helped me do that. Um, so Daniel, we're making the turn into an intense fall where the fate of Congress is about to be decided. Yeah. Why should my listeners read your book now? How is it going to help them understand what's going on this fall? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think certainly if they if they they're trying to go volunteer for a campaign and want to understand what the people who do get to be in the back rooms making decisions are doing, that's you know that's that's one piece of the book. I think it also might give them some sense of um, you know the people I sorry I'm trying to say two things at once, but I think it also gives you some sense of uh what you know how it could be different if you're sort of in that experience of of volunteering for a campaign or if you're not so deeply involved in politics and you're just interested in how it works part of what i'm trying to give people an Im image of is is what it, what it could and should be um that it could be more connected that it could be more about people that it could be more about you know bringing us bringing those of us who care about you know, issues around the environment or ju social justice of various sorts into working with each other. Um, I think also it just, you know, it, you know the, some of it is just like, if you want to understand who, why the decisions are being made the way they're being made, what's the overall strategy? Um, who's making those decisions? Why are you talking to this voter and not that voter? A lot of that is in the book as well. Yeah, I think that's really right. And one suggestion you make at the end, um, which I think is really important, is that if people want to play a meaningful role in a campaign, um, work for someone who's running for school board, work for someone who's running for town council, because those are the races where you can really make a difference um, and get involved and learn some things that you wouldn't learn on a, on a bigger campaign. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing I, I say, which I really believe is that if you, you know, if you want politics to be different, I think a lot of people who are on the, you know, on the further left side of the political spectrum are deeply, deeply skeptical, if not just completely cynical about electoral politics. But I would argue if you want politics to be better, if you want the Democratic Party to, to be closer to your vision of what it ought to be, getting involved with it in various ways is is the way to move it to where you want to see it. I think that's a great place to end. Daniel Lorison, thank you so much for writing this book, for being on this podcast. And um, I'll see you at the polls in November. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And 
that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to new episodes. Leave a comment to let me know what you think or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. We're submitting Why Now to Apple iTunes and all the podcast platforms. So please share with a friend and show big tech that we're popular. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. And that's all for now. See you next time.